From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Colin Donovan, our very own Vice President of Theology, is in the house ready to answer your questions. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205 2712985 and we will put you straight to the front of the line at 12052712985 and you can always send us an email that email address is openline at ewtn.com I'm Jack Williams Michael McCall producing the program your call screener is Matt Gubensky Colin Donovan is our host as he is every Friday and handling our social media efforts for the final time today, Mr. Jeff Burson, magnificent person. So if you are uh, watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, type a note into the chat window for Mr. Burson as he is retiring to spend more time with his lovely wife, Lisa. They're going to do some traveling, and we wish him nothing but the best. Uh, as I told him earlier today, it would be hard to write the history of EWTN without including him. His fingerprints are all over various parts of this building, and uh, I just wanted to take this opportunity to uh, express my gratitude not only for everything that he does for us around here at EWTN, for just the person that he is, uh, for his friendship, and just for him being him. So keep Jeff and his lovely wife Lisa in your prayers, and hopefully they will have uh, as fruitful a retirement as he has had a career. Got an email here from John in Boise, Idaho. He says, Mr. Donovan, if I understand correctly, the Catholic Church claims that the apostles practiced the Catholic faith. I personally find this to be an absurd position. If they did, why is the Bible absolutely devoid of so much Catholic teaching? I'm thinking of things such as the seven sacraments, canon law, the bodily assumption of Mary, the deposit of merit, etc. Well, um... I think that's a wrong idea, not only about the church, but also about the Bible. Uh, if the, that the Bible, for example, was a formed document, uh, and indeed it was, and it was formed by the Catholic Church and its pronouncements of the Catholic Church, which established it. But what Christ communicated to the apostles was his authority, and we find that at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. He sent them out to baptize. Uh, he sent them out, obviously, to teach, to preach, to teach, and so on. And uh, he sent them out also with his authority to govern the church, uh, his assembly of the redeemed. And he uses, uh, uh, you know, this is Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. So that there was a church existing from the beginning is certainly in the Scripture— 
But we have to ask ourselves the question in 39 AD, six years after the, the death of our Lord or thereabouts, or in 59 or 89 or 299, um, but limiting ourselves to the first century, was there a collection of sacred writings to which the could be referred for guidance? And when John the Apostle died, uh, as the last of the apostles to die in the 90s, what was what was the patrimony, if you will, of teaching and revelation that was communicated into the second Christian century, into the second century? What it was was the teaching of the apostles. Uh, the Bible was, the New Testament was available in parts. Already in 160, we see uh, Justin uh, in Rome uh, speaking of uh, a liturgical practice which the Christians had where the memoirs of the apostles were read and then the body and blood of Christ was consumed, the Eucharist, uh, after the blessing of the presider. So we see the elements of the church in the New Testament. We see the structure of the church in her episcopoi, presbyteroi, and diaconoi, the bishops, priests, and deacons as having and carrying out the, the, the mission of Christ with Christ's authority, which certainly Scripture records. And only in the late 2nd century and into the 3rd and 4th century do we ha have lists of collections of books that were recognized by Scripture. Uh, and those are in general agreement going into the 4th century when we start to see uh, church bodies and church individuals formally claiming that these are the books of sacred scripture, such as the Bishop of Rome in 380, St. Augustine in the 390s, uh, and, and St. Jerome by simply the fact that in the early 400s we had a Latin translation of the, uh, both the Old Testament scriptures and uh, the New Testament uh, Greek scriptures. So, the history of what we all have today and all what all Christians and even those that aren't formally within the body of Christians such as Mormons and and Jehovah Witnesses and others who do look in some measure to the Christian scriptures all of that was in the custody of what you could only call the Catholic Church now the name itself is first used in around 3107 when St. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, a bishop, arrested and taken to Rome uh, as his punishment for being a Christian and a bishop to boot. Uh, and on his way, he writes letters to the seven churches after the fashion of St. John, who had done that in uh, uh, earlier in the book of Revelation. And he uses this expression, the Catholic Church, for the body of the Christians. And you see that in many ancient writings where, how do I distinguish which is the authentic group of Christians in the world? Is it those who believe Jesus was just a very good man over here? Is it those who claim that it's all in the writings which they possess, the, the Gnostics, for example, or the Judaizers in in, in uh, um, in Asia Minor, which St. Paul re refers to, uh, those who impress the need to follow the Jewish practices. How do you know where the truth lies? Well, you know it lies in the Catholic Church, which also was then called the, the Orthodox Church, the true, the, or, or the straight uh, church. And so this history and these references of Catholic and Orthodox and so on go pretty much continuously, but everybody knows 
that they're at this one group that carries the belief that it has that it continues the ministry of the apostles and it continues in the places where the apostles went, the dioceses or sees, uh, as they are called in Latin. And that it does that, and it does that in unity, the teaching as in unity. And so not too long after Justin refers to the, the way the liturgy is celebrated by Christians, we have St. Irenaeus of Lyon describing uh, answering questions uh, and uh, and about different heretical claims that are about in the Mediterranean in his against heresies, and he makes a statement: If you wish to know where to find what comes down from Christ, then you go to these these seas to where there is a continuity back to the apostles and principally the apostolic sea, the Sea of Rome. So. The point is, I guess, in answer to uh, John's question is, no, there was no Catholic Church because there didn't need to be in the sense of this building over here are the Catholics and this over here are the Judaizers and this over here is the Gnostic Church. Uh, This is here, those that claim Jesus was a good man. You didn't need that because everybody knew who the Christians were. So much so that 27, I believe, is the number of the first 33 bishops of Rome were put to death by the Roman emperors in punishment for being Christians. And the dictum that was used to, uh, you know, kill Christ, you know, strike the shepherd and the fleet and the uh, sheep will scatter, was used against the church. And so when Rome was looking for someone to use it against, Whom did they strike? The bishop of the flock of the Church of Rome. The bishop, the deacons, the priests of Rome. And throughout the emperor, uh, bishops and priests were being put to death at different times in history. Always they were Catholic bishops, bishops of places where the church was in union with the Roman church. So the name and the label in a more pronounced way came later, but the reality of the universality, which is what Catholic means, of the Christian church under the headship of Peter's successor and the other successors of the apostles was well known. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Mary in Seattle, Washington, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls. Give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, Michael McCall is so legalistic, he's at it again has no regard for whether or not we're finished with our private conversation. He just starts the program, 
And away we go. The clock is king, I guess. I'm telling you. Um, Got a great item here, a DVD on the life of St. John Newman. You can learn more about him on his feast day with this EWTN original docudrama that explores his life. From his early life in the Czech Republic, his ministry as a redemptorist priest, and his appointment as the fourth bishop of Philadelphia in 1852, St. John Newman was a zealous missionary and founder of Catholic education in the United States. This one-disc, one-hour-long DVD was filmed on location in the Czech Republic, as well as the United States, and tells all about his patron, about this patron saint of Catholic education and the first male American citizen to be canonized. It's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. They're offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. Standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. It's a big uh, big week for uh, education here in the, on the Roman calendar. Yeah, uh, it certainly is. St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. Um, 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six. First up today is Mary. She is in Seattle, Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Mary, thanks so much for holding. You're on with Colin. Hi, Colin. Um, I wanted to ask you a question following my mom's exhortation to pray for the poor souls <laughs> in purgatory. I started wondering what exactly does a person say when they're praying for the souls in purgatory is it enough to just hold them in your mind or Mm -hmm. what words would a person use praying for them sure yeah and of course there's the formal prayer of the the liturgy when the person dies and they're buried or you have a memorial mass in which the church herself formally is praying for for them but the encouragement to pray for the souls in purgatory is something that runs through all the saints they uh, they say not only do the souls in purgatory need our prayers, they cannot merit for themselves anymore. Merit is something, um, merit meaning our cooperation with God, which God himself then blesses because we we did what he wanted, and he blesses as he said he would. The poor souls can't do that, and so we pray for them. And it can be in your own words, uh, you know, spontaneously, uh, you know, Lord, uh, have mercy on my mom and dad and welcome them into your kingdom, uh, into your presence and the joys of your presence. And along those kinds of lines, uh, you can do that. You can do formal prayers, and most Catholic prayer books will have formal prayers uh, that can be offered for the souls in purgatory. Uh, I don't know if it's still around. There used to be the Purgatorial Society Handbook, or Prayer Book, I think it was called, and that was a, a, a group, a ministry, whose job was to encourage praying for the poor souls and, you know, sort of collected from from history the, the different prayers that were used. And uh, I don't know if something like that is still out there. I believe they are. We are uh, our own Susan Tassoni, who has written so much about the poor souls. Probably in our religious catalog, you will find uh, uh, her books and other books which have some of these prayers in them. We can pray the rosary. We can pray uh, prayerfully meditate on the sacred scripture, offering it for uh, a particular soul or the poor souls in general. Uh, when we go to Mass, we can unite our, our Mass and our communions uh, for the release of the poor souls for their bless- benefit. 
So almost anything that we could do be which before God we could claim, you know, we are complying with his will by uh, the good work in the Catholic meaning of that that we do, we can also offer for others. And we can offer indulgences, meaning that when we do a work with the churches prescribed and blessed in a particular way, and grants either partial or plenary indulgence for doing it, we can offer that indulgence for the poor souls, or a particular soul even. So just a whole plethora, I have to use a good word here for Jack to be happy at, by the end of the show. Is that anything like a plethora? A plethora, that, that same thing. Uh, for a whole plethora or plethora of... Uh, uh, things we can do to pray for and support them as they await their release and their entry into the divine presence. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. Um, Charles writes in, he says, the question is about having a reliquary with a consecrated host in it to leave at a parishioner's home. Let me explain. We have homebound parishioners that cannot come to adoration. It was suggested that a reliquary could be used with the consecrated host to bring to those homebound with the intention that they would have the same opportunity with it for adoration. It would be taken back after a given period, the host consumed and replaced. Can you tell me if this is acceptable? If so, why? If not, why? This is a big discussion item, and I really need help to do what is right with the Lord and our faith. The, uh, the care and where it may be reserved and by whom is under the decision-making of one person in a diocese, and that's the bishop. Uh, he must authorize places where the Blessed Sacrament is reserved. Uh, it's, you know, there can be, uh, I can remember a case... An instance when I lived in Seattle and I was taking communion to uh, University of Washington Hospital, I got back and I couldn't get in through the door which the Dominicans had set aside where you could return the blessing. And the house looked dark. It was actually quite late. I think it was like 1030. And so I reserved the Blessed Sacrament in my apartment overnight, did some adoration, uh, treated it respectfully and so on, and then returned it to the church in the morning. That was a reservation by necessity, and necessity is uh, uh, is the mother of many things that we uh, we can do, which the law does not foresee. But I think it's a question that if this has been brought to the pastor's attention so far in the discussion of it, uh, it must also be brought to the bishop's attention, who alone could authorize. Uh, something like that. That is my understanding, at least from my knowledge of the law, such as it is. That is my understanding as well, and I can almost bet you 90 to nothing that mobile monstrance not going to fly with any bishop. No, no. <laughs> Thanks, Charles. We appreciate the question. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Uh, J.L. writes in, how would you answer someone who keeps cremated remains reverently at the church, uh, that the church says they should be buried when they argue we keep bones of saints? Well, uh, we don't actually have to have the theological argument anymore because recently uh, the Rome authorized 
that there may be with the permission with permission the reservation of some small portion i wouldn't call reservation but that some portion of the remains of a loved one could be kept by the family that too requires permission and the ordinary course uh, created remains or cremains as they're often called must be buried in a columbarium you could bury them in the ground, of course, but that seems an extraordinary step for something so small. But there'd be no reason it couldn't be uh, in, a, in a grave. But normally in a columbarium, and many parishes have that now, uh, as our own cathedral has. So those are the, are the options. So somebody who wanted to do that should go have that discussion with their bishop uh, or with their pastor uh, and, and let him answer it for them. Uh, certainly not take it upon themselves to do that. And it, this is no envisioning here of the entirety of the remains, but something, you know, small, such as you might have in, in a reliquary. The idea here is not, in the case of a reliquary, there is a reference to the uh, sanctity of the individual whom the church has said is, you know, a blessed or... Uh, in heaven. Uh, there's a special acknowledgement of that, so maintaining this, having this privilege to keep some small amount of a family member in, in the home would not be the, uh, the same thing as having a relic in the home. The relic is a religious article. We, the church, uh, knows from the early centuries, even from sacred scripture, that God uses material things to, to bless people and to communicate uh, even his grace or the, create the situation by which his grace is invited to come into the souls of individuals by the person, for example, uh, through prayer before a relic or something like that. And as we see in the sacred scripture, even the healing, uh, which came about through the, uh, through the handkerchief of St. Paul, uh, or even the miracles of the parting of the waters, which came about through Elijah's cloak when Elisha used it. So the material thing itself is an instrument, can be an instrument of, of, of grace, even of miracles. Uh, scripture shows this to be the case, both Old and New Testament, uh, and that's by the will of God and by the divine power, not by the thing intrinsically. Uh, Elijah's cloak was nothing in and of itself and neither was the hanky of St. Paul. But by the will of God, the holiness of the individual could be indicated by that, and God blesses doing that with some grace or even some miracle. 833-288-EWTN, a rarity on a Friday, wide open phone lines for you. Any question you have for Colin Donovan about theology or the Catholic faith in general, please pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. Scott writes in, I'm Catholic, but my wife is not religious. She doesn't have an issue with raising our children as a Catholic. At the baptism ceremony, when asked the questions about believing in the Catholic Church, etc., we both responded, I do. Since she isn't Catholic and doesn't really believe those things, would that invalidate the baptism? Ab absolutely not. The baptism is an act of ch uh, Christ. Uh, it's a gratuity of the Church. The willingness as the willingness of the, of the individual, if an adult, uh, and their belief— 
Yes, it's true that the parents uh, are asking for it. Neither, both parents don't need to be Catholic. Uh, one, you, you know, the if, if let's say, the, or even Christian, one of the parties might be Jewish or nothing. As long as they've uh, provided for the child to be baptized, that's all that the church is, uh, is looking for. And so the baptism is certainly valid, and uh, perhaps that's an inkling of some good working of God's grace and light in, in her, and we'll pray for that. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Sydney in Mobile, Alabama, listening on Archangel Radio. Sydney, you're on with Colin Donovan. Yes, thank you. How should a Catholic respond to a communion service at a non-Catholic church or whatever they are? Yeah, yeah. Um. Well, you, you have to compare it to what you, we do in in the church itself, in the Catholic Church, and that is, we believe that at the consecration, the bread and the wine are transubstantiated into the body and blood of Christ. And as I noted earlier, even in the middle of the second century, this was a clear belief of of the church that this was what Jesus said it was, the, his body and blood. Now, other church, some churches claim that as well. Um, from the Catholic the theological perspective, they do not. The Lutherans, for example, with their theory of of consubstantiation, but they also lack uh, the apostolic uh, succession of orders, as does the Anglican Communion. So, pretty much outside of the Catholic Church, the Eastern Catholic, the Roman uh, Rite, the Eastern Catholic Churches, and the Orthodox Churches, who are also apostolic and have valid orders and valid sacraments. Uh, the only outside of those, the Eucharist is bread and it's wine. It's not the body and blood of Christ. So to go forward would be to state one's belief that what was being offered in that non-Catholic church was actually our Lord. Now, uh, you could look at that from two point of four, two points, two points of view. Going forward and believing it would give to that. Uh, material uh, sacrilege of adoring something which wasn't Christ. Or it would manifest a uh, sort of a uh, an external lie that you believe this to be something authentic when it isn't. And I think on both grounds we have to say, no, I can't go forward thinking or believing or even feigning that I believe that this is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ when it is not. So I think that's the answer. It gets to our own integrity, our own authenticity as Catholics, uh, our own belief that when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, and they left him when they thought, well, he's talking about real body and blood here, I'm out of here. 
the apostles had to, you know, stayed, and Catholics stay and hold to that as they have since the first century, as the the uh, beliefs of the fathers demonstrate, the writings of the fathers, and so we want to hold fast to that, and we don't want to conflate that and and with other teachings which uh, do not come from Christ and do not hold which was communicated to the church by our Lord. Does that make sense, Sidney? Uh, yes, it does. And so, at, for instance, at an Anglican funeral, there was a communion service. I did not think it was uh, it was the body and blood of Christ, but as a show of unity with the grieving, should I have abstained from going forward to a distribution of bread? Yes, because... Th- it can't help be taken as understanding, for instance, that they have authentic uh, priests. They do not. Although some more Anglo-Catholic branches do seek to get uh, actual real orders from outside of the Anglican communion by going to Eastern bishops or schismatic Catholic or Orthodox bishops. But I, I, th- I think that br- will... You know, it's one thing to say, well, I, you know, I respect you, your beliefs, but my beliefs are that I can't do that. It's very easy, you know, just to, um, you know, there's a, there's a great line in A Man for All Seasons where, where uh, Thomas More is having a discussion about the oath of supremacy with the uh, Duke of Norfolk. Uh, and the Duke, and the, you know, the Duke is just saying, well, you know, Come along, if you won't come by belief, come along for friendship. And the response of Moore is, well, when you go to hell, or when I go to hell because I didn't believe, stick to my beliefs, will you come along for friendship? And that's basically the crux of it. Not that necessarily hell is involved here, but it makes the point that our own integrity and, and keeping to that I think it goes a long way to inviting others to share the same integrity and say, well, I respect what you believe to us, but I don't, you know, I don't believe that myself. And when you get into fights and families over going to weddings or going to, you know, whether weddings outside the church or, or so-called gay weddings or whatever, it comes down to, well, you have your conscience, I have mine, I'm going to follow mine. And uh, you're obviously free to follow yours, and I think you can show respect in other ways without, you know, nibbling at uh, an untruth. Next up is Jesse in Houston, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Jesse, you're on with Colin Donovan. Yes, sir. Um, my question to you is, uh, is, is it a sin if someone leaves the Catholic Church? I, I was... Uh, I was raised Catholic. I was I was baptized as, a, as an infant, and uh, I did my first communion. And um, so, I but I've only I've only done confession probably once since I was eight. And mm-hmm. I recently gave my well, not recently. I gave myself to the Lord. I want to say about two years ago. But I was during my whole my whole walk. I was kind of looking into as I as I learned. I was I was looking into denominations. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I wasn't sure about the the, the, the Catholic faith, Protestant faith. I, I didn't, I didn't know, you know, much about it. I, it was just something that sure. that mm-hmm. uh, that happened. So, anyways, to make the long story short, right now I'm just kind of up in the air of, about 
is it a sin to to leave the Catholic Church if 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 I'm deciding to move somewhere else? Sure. Uh, you have to look at this at two point of, points of views. There is the truth statement that I described earlier in the program that we know the origins of the Catholic Church. We also know the origins of other churches. They have founders. They have dates, most of them in the modern era, modern era being basically post-Middle Ages, 15, 1600 and forward. Uh, some more recently. They're, they're, they're splitting every day. I'm sure there's another few hundred denominations, independent churches, in the last, uh, you know, here we are in 2024. There may already be one or two already. It's a, there's a continual division, which is what you expect when you fall away from the vine. You know, the church is described as a vine in, in sacred scripture. And so Israel, it was originally Israel's vine, but they have fallen away and they will rejoin. But others, even Christian believers, have fallen away over time, and we hope and pray that they too will rejoin. That's the doctrinal part of it. That's the truth part of the question. The moral part is always very complicated. Um, and so the church distinguishes, first of all, that you might say this truth part. Our goal would be that every person in the world believes in Jesus Christ, believes in God, of course, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, believes in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, believes in the church he founded, because that's clearly a part of what he did and his mission is impossible to fail. So that church is somewhere in the world. Where is it? I think the answer is evident. So the question becomes not the truth part of it, but the accountability part of it, and that's where sin is. An eight-year-old is going to go and do, most, for the most part, you know, what their parents, their grandparents, their family members lead them to do. There's not a lot of mental reasoning going on here. You're just following in well, the family tradition. Well, we're Catholics, we're Italians, or we're Irish, or whatever, and we've always been Catholics. And, you know, that can be sort of the, you know, the, the go-along mentality at work there, and you can go through your whole life in that mentality and stay in the church, or you can actually leave the church if uh, by the mentality that I'm not just going to go along. I want to go over here because I see Jesus at work over here. Where am I seeing that in my parish? So people have all kinds of reasons for leaving the church, and only God can judge those reasons. But the bottom line is, no reason is actually sufficient. The culpability can be excused because of the circumstances of individuals. But to say that there is ever a sufficient reason for leaving the church would be to say that what Christ did was somehow temporal, weak, fragile, you know, it's not lasting. Well, is that really the case? The Son of God did it. Is that really what he did? Has he got to come back again to straighten it all out? He will, but it'll be the last day. He's not coming back a thousand years before to straighten it out. So the question is, the culpability can be excused. But the truth element of this is, the church Christ founded has the truth, it has the apostles, all scriptural, 
It has the sacrament, the means of salvation that he instituted, which are the fulfillment of the sacramental life of the Jewish people, which was not a waste of time to have it there, but it foreshadowed what the church has. So all that Christ intended is available in the church in the hands of sinful people, fallible people, wrong-headed people. All the, all the human faults are present in the church, but also along with the holiness of Christ, which comes through the sacraments, which comes through the teaching, which comes through uh, the works that the church evidently does in terms of charitable works and, and, and all the problems and weaknesses of the world. So where is that church? You should be asking God to lead you to the church he founded and then let him lead you there. And I think he will lead you home. Um, You may not be there, but that's between you and him, and we'll pray for you. God bless you, Jesse. We appreciate the phone call. Next up is Anna, another first-time caller. She's also in the Republic of Texas in San Antonio, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Anna, you're on with Colin Donovan. Well, hello, um, and it's good afternoon here in Texas. Um, I was telling the gentleman that I would like to know, at what point does the soul enters the body at the moment of conception or at the moment of birth? When God created Adam, he blows his spirit into Adam and gives him life, which is our soul. So um, I don't have an answer for, for that. Well, I, I think you actually do because you sort of expressed it, even though I don't think you see clearly clearly that. God created Adam, and he took that matter, and in creating him instantly, he have a, had a soul. He blew into his soul. That's not meant to be, well, a month later, five months later, nine months later. So what God created was a human being, and a human being is a body and soul. That's the definition. Now, the church, like the world, the, the biology of that is something, well, we always ask throughout history, they've asked the question, well, when does the human being present? Now, we know a thousand times more about that than they did as recently as the 1800s. What we know about the process of human conception and the the element male and female that goes into that have come with the, with the invention of the microscope and genetic discoveries and all of this and is a rather recent knowledge. But in the ancient world, they knew about animation because that's when what they thought was animation. That's when the mother could feel the baby kicking. She had a, maybe a sense that she was pregnant, but when the baby moved, she knew for a fact. They didn't have ultrasound, so she needed something you know, clear. That has to give way to the facts. And the church has always held to the position that from the moment of conception, a sacred reality is here, even though it didn't know the biological facts. In our day, and in the last 200 years, the biological facts of when a human being becomes present in the mother are indisputable. Indisputable. We know it because genetics shows that that's not a dog, cat, monkey, or any other animal in there. And an animal is a bodily thing. And the human being is an animal 
a rational animal, as he's been called by philosophers for over 2,300 years. A human being is a rational animal, an ensouled animal. So whenever animal life begins, which is at conception, bodily life begins at conception, that's when we must insist to the world it deserves the respect of a human person and not a clump of cells. So there is no question that the respect that is owed to the conceived child from the moment of his existence is the respect that I owe to Jack here and Mike in the booth and to anybody else on the planet. 833-288-EWTN. Listen, if you miss any of uh, Open Line or if you want to hear one of Colin's answers again, you can check out the Encore. You'll hear the entire program again tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Radio. Mary Ann's also a first-time caller. She's in Camino, California, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Mary Ann, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. I appreciate you guys. Sure. Um, I have a question regarding taking communion to my mom. I live now in a place that's a little uh, more rural, and um, I I go to St. Patrick's Church out here, mm-hmm. and I can I can legitimately go up there with my picks and get the communion. That's not the problem, but I can't help feeling like I'm always feeling like I'm doing something wrong. Am I not being reverent enough? I, I probably shouldn't do this. Now, my husband goes with me to, to church, and because we're out of the house, sometimes um, my sister will go, and, oh, let's go out to breakfast. We're further away from home than to just run home, bring communion in, and continue. So I'm always kind of caught in the dilemma of what to do. Mm-hmm. I can receive, I can get communion to bring her, but then if my sister and my husband, they decide, oh, yeah, let's go out to breakfast, you know, after church then I'm kind of stuck. So I tend to, maybe I won't bring her communion, but then she doesn't get communion. So she's homebound pretty much. I mean, she yeah. definitely can't get up for church and that kind of thing. I just don't know what to do. Yeah. Well, I, I think the mind of the church is clear on this. Um, and and I ta- I'm assuming in all of this that you have been deputed by your pastor, at least, to be able to do this. That would be the proper order of things. And having that deputation, uh, in a sense, to represent him and to represent the bishop in, in bringing the sacrament to her, your obligation is to go home and give her the sacrament. Uh, and if you're not able to do that because there's some, an unavoidable conflict that requires you to go you know, somewhere else in the intervening, then you should make arrangements to go back later uh, and get the Blessed Sacrament and do it immediately. So that, that's the respect that we owe to the Blessed Sacrament. And where there have been norms, as I said, I've served as an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. Um, it's been many years now since I did that. There was always clear norms on this. You didn't, you know, how you carry the Blessed You didn't just put them in your pocket. Um, you didn't even put them in your purse. You had a pyx. You hung it around your neck. You went straight to where you were uh, you know, to, to give communion, you uh, if you had any, if you were visiting several people, and of course many times uh, lay Eucharistic ministers are taking, or lay extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion are taking them to, say, a, 
a home or several homes and, and distributing them. Uh, if you have any left over, you go immediately back to the church. If you don't, you do as I did in the day. You can go home and then purify your picks and consume that water, uh, just as you would do, the priest would do to the ciborium and the patent and so on at Mass. So that is the proper way to deal with that situation. Um, that That's going to be hard to carry out, but that's that's the best way, that's the, the noble and respectful way of te- treating our Lord. Next up is Peter. He is also in the Republic of Texas and also a first-time caller and also listening on Guadalupe Radio. Peter, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello there. How are you today? Pretty good. What's your question, Peter? Oh, well, uh, you know what? I'll, I'll let me explain a little bit. Uh, we have a big family, okay? We have been Catholic. And now uh, the, the family is kind of being divided because some some tools to be evangelical, and uh, they, they said that uh, Catholic people, we are not Christian, and we are not safe. So, uh, and this is getting really after, because uh, I thought, you know, if you're Catholic, Catholic, and if you're Christian, you'll be safe. But apparently, accordingly with the evangelical, we are not safe, because we are not Christian. So uh, they decided to give us a little bit of uh, Bible study. And now I'm even more confused because after this study, uh, I made some questions to the pastor about why I'm not saved and uh, if Jesus is coming, um, why I'm not going to be saved. And he told me why. And then I, we started again. And I, I didn't see anything in the Bible that Jesus would come second and third time. And he didn't give me any answer because the prophecies on the Old Testament doesn't say that. So now we are confused. It's a big fight on the family. We don't know what a Christian or not Christian anymore or just yeah. coming or not coming anymore. So I don't know. I, I, I want somebody from outside to give me a little bit of light of it. Well, for for starters, uh, I guess the Paul, Saint Paul asked himself that same question because he actually was afraid that having preached to others, he himself would be damned. My gosh, he was not once saved, always saved. I, that's a head slapper. I would like you to you should ask him that question. Was Saint Paul saved when he said he was afraid that he, uh, that having preached to others, he himself would be damned? I think the answer is is quite clear. How we die is going to determine whether we're saved or not saved. And neither the pastor or the others who are talking to you or Jack or I can know, know being a certain knowledge in the way I know, you know, that gravity is, you know, 16 feet per second per second. You can't know it in that way. And so we are living in reliance on the Lord, and we live in reliance on the Lord to the end of our life. And we're living in that reliance always with the free will that at the end, I could spit in his face and not go to heaven. That's what free will means. And it's a terrible responsibility we all have. 
And what the Catholic Church gives you is what I would explain to a previous caller. You could listen to that again if you didn't hear that in detail or get the podcast. And that is, she gives you the sacrament which Christ left to the world to communicate the graces of the redemption. And also because he left pastors in the church, the apostles and those whom they appointed to succeed them, you can know with certainty that they are legitimate and valid and they do what the church has always believed. So we have a connection, the church has a connection back to the apostles and to the sacraments which the apostles used. And we find those we find those in the fathers of the church. We don't find them in the details necessarily of sacred scripture because the fatal Protestant theological position is the sufficiency of scripture alone because scripture was not possibly sufficient when nobody held it in the first and second and third century. When those who were representing Christ in those centuries were discussing which books were canonical, which books are inspired by God, and ruling them out not based on self-judgment, but based on agreement with the teaching that they themselves held from the apostles, which is what the church means when it talks about the sacred tradition. So the Catholic Church has what St. Paul's uh, demanded that people do, and that is not only those things that I, that I wrote you, but those which I taught you, that tradition, which I handed on. He says handed on, and the word for that is trotere in Latin, and that's where we get our English word tradition from. So these two are like two gloves of the same person, and they both feed us the faith and the sacraments, and they will both bring us to the end of our life and faithfully. So I can honestly say no person really knows that they're going to be saved, but they can have faith, they can have hope that they're going to be saved because they're using the means which hope gives, the sacraments, and of course they can have charity and love for their neighbor and for God and do everything they can to remain faithful to him to that last moment of their life. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again on Monday with Father John Tregilio. Jeff Burson, we love you. God bless. Amen. Hey